We are in uh, the third week of a series uh, on the book of Mark called Mark the Servant King. And uh, we've just been taking a walk through, slowly, through the book of Mark and looking at the life and the person and the ministry uh, of Jesus through Mark's eyes. The title is The Servant King because that is how Mark reveals Jesus to us as the servant king. It culminates in chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says this, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And throughout this series, we are asking one question, and it's not a question that we came up with. It's actually a question that Jesus asked his disciples, and it's really a question that continues to be asked throughout the ages because it demands a response from every person, regardless of of where you come, from where you come, what language you speak, what culture you are a part of. Everyone has to answer this question, and that's this. Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And when he asked that question, they, they said, well, some people say that you're this and some people you say that you're that and so on and so forth. And Jesus said, I'm not asking you what other people or who other people say that I am. I'm asking you, who do you say that I am? We all have to answer that question because Jesus is either he's a good man, he's a prophet, he said some good things, he's a historical figure, or he is the son of God. And he did what he said he would do. And we have to answer that. We have to come to terms with who he is in our life and make, that, make the answer. And so that's what we're asking throughout the course of this series is who do you say that he is? And week number one, we jumped into it and tried to look at verses one through eight and really didn't get too much past verse one. And the claim that Mark makes from the beginning where he says, this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Mark doesn't even tell us where Jesus was born. It gives us no genealogy like Matthew, Luke, and John. Why? Because who cares about the genealogy of a servant, right? He just jumps and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Son of God. He is the one whom has been prophesied all throughout history. He's here, and his ministry has begun. And last week, when I was gone, Pastor Brian, he talked about Jesus calling his disciples, how he walked along and called a bunch of ragtag fishermen to come and follow him and to give up everything that they had, guarantee of no, no guarantee of success, and just follow him. And the call that he issued to those disciples, those ragtag bunch of fishermen, is not a call that was exclusive to them. It is a call that is still being given to us today. God is calling us to follow him with everything that we have. Not situationally or categorically, but with every part of who we are. He's calling us. Today, what I want to do is go to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We're jumping ahead a little bit, skipping over some verses. We've seen Jesus come on the scene, the announcement of his ministry, the commissioning of his ministry, even the calling of his team, so to speak. But now he's begun to do some things that are, are, are just taking it to the next level. He's traveling around and he's speaking, he's teaching, but he's also performing miracles. And wherever Jesus goes, the crowd has begun to form. He's being mobbed. He can't even walk down the street because so many people are coming. Why? Because there is no sickness, there is no disease, and there is no deformity that comes in contact with Jesus that still dominates the person's life. Everything that Jesus comes into contact with, he heals and he makes whole. And people have never seen anything like it before. So we have people who are desperate, who are suffering, that are crowding around him just to see him, just to hear him, and most importantly, just to touch him or for him to touch them. Why? So they can go away and be healed and no longer suffer 
anymore. What we'll see today is actually uh, something that I think we've all experienced in our life. How, how many of you have, have known, you know what your need is, you, you know what you need, you think you know what you want, and you go somewhere and the person tries to give you something or sell you something that you don't think that you need? Anybody? Like you go, I, I, I have to fix this and I need this part. And you go there and they say, oh, yeah, you need that part, but you also need this. You're like, I don't think I need that part, right? But I need this part. So you get the part that you think you need and then you get home and you realize, yeah, I did need that part because this part doesn't work without that part. And this part is just as bad as that part was. So then you got to go back, Right. How many of you have just, you know, like you, you've gone to God and you said, I, I, this is what I need, God. I, I need this. I need more money. I need a better job. I need a better wife. I need a better husband. I need, I need just to be prettier. I need to be whatever. And God doesn't seem to give you what you want. You ever felt like God was immune to your suffering? You ever felt like God didn't care about your need? That God or, or maybe, maybe Christians or the church was trying to push something on you that you didn't think that you need? We'll see that in the story today. We'll see that there is a need represented, but seemingly the response to the need or the suffering isn't what what was asked for. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, and I just want to see if you can spot it in here, and we'll get to there. We'll talk about it. But if you have your Bibles, go with me. If you have your phones, your iPads, whatever the case may be, you can flip there. I hope that you've been reading through the book of Mark. I issued that challenge at the beginning. If you haven't, don't worry. You can catch up real quick because Mark writes so fast. He uses the word immediately 42 times. It's just boom, 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 boom. I like him because he doesn't waste words, you know? So let's go. Chapter 2, verses 1, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sons are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. He didn't have any sons. He was apparently, I can't read. Let's do that again. Verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up, and walk, if you're mad, and walk? He says, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the door and the stun, through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. So the setting of the story is, is that Jesus has come back to Capernaum where he was staying at the time. And he's staying in a house. We know it's not his house, so he's staying in, in someone else's home. And he's there probably to rest, but people find out that he's there and they just begin to show up. And Jesus begins to teach them. The Bible says they're teaching him God's word. He's just opening the scripture to them and teaching them. And before you know it, there are so many people inside the house that it, they have to start filling up outside of the house. Now, the houses weren't necessarily 
necessarily huge back then. A first century Jewish home, I think we have a picture, kind of looks like this. There's like a courtyard, but you see where those steps are in the left-hand corner. Uh, That was kind of leading into the house. So they imagined that maybe you could fit 50 people shoulder to shoulder, packed to the gills inside. And now people are outside trying to peer through the windows, peer through the door. Why? They just want to hear them. They just want to see them. They just want to come into contact with them. Why? Because there is no sickness There is no disease and there is no deformity that when it comes in contact with Jesus, that it is not healed. And so he's there teaching. He didn't plan this, right? This is a spontaneous event and it's packed. And it says that four men show up to this event and they're carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Basically on a stretcher, right? They probably have ropes tied to the corner so they can hold it on their shoulders. And they show up and they realize there's no way we're getting through all this crowd of people. So the next logical thing they decide to do is to go up the steps on the side of the house to the roof. You'll see that. There were steps leading up to the roof. It's pretty common. We don't do that here, right? How many of you have steps leading up to your roof on the outside of your house? No. It's lunacy, right? Well, they did. They used it as a work slash living space. They have flat roofs. They don't pitch them like we do. They do this in Guatemala. They just build. Why? Because they want to keep building up. There's no room to build out, so they build up. And they have literally have stairs. I went to a house there in Guatemala. They had steps walking up, and there was a piece of corrugated metal that was like the, the hatch. And you just walk right up, and you're on the roof, and you can see the whole city. And so the roof could support the weight of people. So their idea is this. Okay, we'll go on the roof and then we will rip a hole in the roof, dig it out, and we will lower this person, our friend, down to see Jesus. Now it's not their house, right? And imagine if the roof is strong enough to support them and support other things, it's going to take some work to dig this out. I don't know if they just used their hands, if they had tools. We have no idea. I want you just to think about the kind of the craziness of this moment. It's not much different than what we're doing. We're kind of packed in here a little bit. And if we were started to hear people on the roof, we have a metal roof. You can hear when it rains. You can hear when a bird lands on our roof. Okay? If people were up there walking around, then we had they had sawzaws and and crowbars, and they just start making a hole in the roof. You all are going to stop taking all the notes you take, right? And you're just going to be looking up, and I'm just going to join you. And we're just going to be looking up, thinking, what in the world? Some of you are going to be calling 911. You're freaking out, going to get your kids. You know, wondering, what in the world is happening? There's someone trying to rip the roof off of this house. Some of you are going to be like, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back, right? And the Lord has come, and you're just going to be waiting for the rapture. And, but we're just going to be, what in the world is going on? But you notice how all that's absent from the story? Like, you read in this account, it appears in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, and nobody talks about the fact that these guys are literally ripping the roof off of this house that isn't theirs. There's no mention of it. The Bible's like, yeah, they dug through the roof, and then Jesus looked up and, and, and spoke. I don't know about you, but it's just kind of crazy. Me, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? Can you think about it from the perspective of the homeowner? Right? Like, this wasn't Jesus' home. He's like, number one, Jesus told he could stay here. He didn't tell me he's having a party. My, and all, now there's 200 plus people in my house. I don't know what the world's going on. Now there's a hole in my roof. I'm wondering, Jesus is going to pay for the hole in my roof. Right? Everybody's waiting, kind of probably with bated breath. But it says nothing of the inconvenience and the distraction and the interruption. Who are these four guys? And I love what the Bible says they put a hole. I mean, think about a stretcher. That's not a hole. That's a gap. I mean, that's a, that you could have fit an entire stretcher down through there to lower it down. 
You can't, you got to do each corner equally, right? Because if they get off at all, the guy is just going down. <laughs> they got to be careful. And we, we see, you kind of wonder, what, what's Jesus thinking? What's his response? Is he concerned about the distraction? Is he concerned about the interruption and the inconvenience of it all? And you get to verse 5 and you realize that if he was, he, has, he shows no, no mention of it. For he looks up and these are what, this is what he says. Seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. He turns to the paralytic and he speaks. Seeing their faith. Every account that you read, Matthew and Luke included, always say the same thing. Jesus seeing their faith. He doesn't mention the paralytic first. He mentions the four friends. Seeing their faith. In fact, there's no mention in the scripture at all of the faith of the paralytic man. Are we saying he didn't have faith? No. Are we saying that he didn't want to be healed? Not at all. I'm pretty sure he wanted to be there. But Jesus did not respond to the faith of the paralytic man. He responds to the faith of the four friends who brought him to Jesus. Now, if you think about the faith that he's talking about, right? He says, I see their faith. Everyone else in the room saw their faith. They were probably wiping their faith off of them, right? As the particles fell down from them. They saw it was on display. I mean, this is a radical faith, isn't it? This is a bold move. These guys show up. I can't get in. What do we do? Their steps. Let's go. What do we do now? Just rip the roof off. What else do we have to do? And they rip it off. It's pretty radical. It's pretty bold. You're probably thinking out, out there saying, well, you know, yeah, it's radical and bold, but I think it's pretty reckless. Obviously, these guys aren't planners, right? Because if they had planned, they would have gotten there early, right? If, if, they, if they were planners, there would be no need to do what they did. And they obviously are inconsiderate because they are destroying someone else's property. And they didn't even ask first. These guys asked for forgiveness rather than permission. Anybody live that way? I got to do. Right? It, it's reckless. Not only is it reckless, but it's risky because what's the guarantee? Is there any guarantee that their friend is going to be healed? There's a bigger guarantee he's going to fall off the stretcher on the way down. There's a bigger guarantee that they're going to have to pay to fix this. There's a bigger guarantee that there is a whole lot more at problems than there is going to be a solution here. There's no guarantee that Jesus is going to heal them. I mean, it's not like they met Jesus the day before and he said, I'm going to do this teaching thing. I'm just going to come on by, man. And I think maybe there's going to be a lot of people. If there is a lot of people, don't worry. They got steps on the side of their house. Can you believe that? And just walk up the steps, tear off the roof, come on down we'll make a scene out of it and we'll remember it for a long time but we we don't read that there's nothing there all we know is this these four men have a friend who's who's paralyzed and all they know is what they've heard that wherever jesus has gone people have crowded him and come to him and no sickness no disease and no deformity has ever walked away without being healed that's all they knew so what was in their heart was this is we just have to get our friend to jesus they, they carried him around probably a, a lot of the time. And they knew that he didn't want to live like that. They knew that he just wanted to walk, that if he could just get in front of Jesus, the potential and the opportunity for Jesus to heal him was worth the risk, was worth the recklessness, is what fueled the radical and bold nature of their faith. So yeah, it's radical, it's bold. I'll go with you. It's even reckless and it's even risky, but here's one thing that it's not. It is not selfish. It is not a selfish faith. I think what happens because of our human nature, we don't do this intentionally, we just do it unintentionally, is that we're just selfish. 
right? We, we think of, of what we can get out of it. God, I'll come to you if you will give me this. Lord, I, I will give if you will give to me. I will serve if you will serve me. And we, it's all about us, what I need, what I want, and my needs are more important than your needs. I mean, that's our culture, number one, and that's just what we do. And it's all, what did I get out of church today? I didn't like your message, pastor, because you didn't do this. I didn't like your clothes. I didn't like the song. I don't like the color of the carpet. I don't like this. Why? It's all about you. And it's selfish. And that's so contrary to the nature of the faith that God expresses to us in the Bible. It is so contrary to Mark and his revelation to us of Jesus as the servant king. He came to serve, not to be served. The faith that Jesus possesses is so selfless that he got up on a cross and gave his life for you and me. And what did he gain out of it? Nothing. Jesus doing what he did did not make him any more God. He was already God. He is preexistent. He is eternal. He has existed within the Godhead for all eternity. Doing what he did did not make him any more than who he, of who he is. He gave up. The Bible says he divested himself to come to this earth and get on a cross and die for you and me. Why? So that we could be in relationship with him for eternity. It only benefits us. It doesn't benefit him. It is selfless to its core. Almost to say that if you claim to be a Christ follower and you are the center of your universe, you need to reevaluate the faith that is flowing through your veins. Because Jesus sees their faith. Because these four men stood to gain nothing. It was all for the benefit of their paralytic friend. I don't know where your faith is this morning. I know where mine is. I'm a selfish person. So if I'm selfish, then I'm just going to assume that you're selfish. Makes me feel better. I don't know where it is. It's not my job to figure that out. But here's my question to you. I, I, do you know anybody in your life that is, is what you would consider has some form of paralysis? Not physically, but spiritually. You know people that are spiritually paralyzed, financially paralyzed, uh, uh, relationally Paralyzed, emotionally paralyzed. There is a paralysis within them that they are trying to compensate for and trying to find the antidote or the remedy for. And you know more than anybody else that all they need to do is just get into contact with Jesus. You know that he's the ultimate solution to the problem. I assume the answer is yes for every person in this room. I assume that it is because we all know somebody, family, friend, coworker, ex-family, ex-friend, ex-coworker, right? That needs just to get in front of Jesus. And my question to you is, is your faith selfless enough where you would take a radical, bold step, maybe a reckless step, maybe a risky step? to introducing them to the person of Jesus? Would you take that card that you pushed out of the way so you could sit down and hand it to somebody and say, and say I just want to invite you to church. We've got three opportunities. Why, why do you want to invite me? Because I just, I, I mean, you just need to meet Jesus. Just come. It's going to be a good time. Could you do that? Could you grab more when you leave? Could you take the one your neighbor doesn't want to take, right? And just hand them out. Seven out of 10 people say if they were invited by someone, they would come to church. 70% chance at success, only 30 at failure. Those are really good odds. Where else are you going to get those? Is your faith selfless enough? But here's the follow-up question. Is the Jesus that you serve, the Jesus that you follow, worth bringing somebody to? Because if he's not, again, you need to reevaluate it. 
If he's not who he says he is, if he's not the savior of the world, if he did, if, if none of that is true, then oh, we'll just pack up and go home right now because there's no point. But if he is, if that selfless faith is flowing through your veins, it's got to express itself in a direction other than you. The message of the gospel is not so self-centered. It's, it's all about other people. For God so loved the world. He didn't say for God so loved himself. For God so loved the world that he gave selfless. That's what happens. Jesus sees their selfless faith. My encouragement to you this Easter season is, why don't you just get a little bit radical, get a little bit bold, get a little bit reckless and risky, and just take a step of faith where you don't know what the response is. Where you risk someone saying no. Where you risk being turned down. Where you risk that, but the potential to gain is worth every part of the risk. The risk and the reckless nature of their faith was worth it because of the potential of what Jesus could do for them. Now when Jesus says that he saw their faith and everyone else saw their faith, He then turns to the paralytic and he says, my child, your sins, not your sons, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not what he asked for. Right? It's almost like you can hear what it's not written, but you can hear it. If you look at the text, you can hear what every one of those friends are thinking and what the man laying on the mat is thinking. What are they thinking? That's not what we ask for. That's not why we came. It's almost as if everybody else in the room understands what's going on and what needs to happen and that Jesus is oblivious to the moment, right? Jesus, this man did not ask for you to forgive his sins. He is crippled. He cannot walk. That's why he's on a stretcher. That's why there's a hole in my roof, Jesus. To heal his legs, but you forgave his sins. It's almost as if Jesus is immune and ignorant to the suffering of what of the need that is right in front of him. How many of you could say that maybe there were times in your life that you too felt as if God were immune to your suffering? And he was doing something for you that you couldn't understand, or he wanted to do something in you that you couldn't understand. You're like, God, I don't need that. I need this. If you will give me this, then everything will be all right. It's if the paralytics say, if you heal my legs, everything This is going to be good. If I can walk, they're not going to have to carry me anymore. I won't be dissatisfied. I'll just be, I'll be happy all the day long. I'll never ask you for anything else if you could just give me this. But Jesus' response, he says something because he understands something that no one else there understood and no one else really fully understands in the world today because of our human nature, and that is this. That the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering, it's always their sin. I say it this way. The main problem in your life and in my life is never our suffering. It's always your sin. Now, that is not easy to hear, right? Because that requires that we identify as being broken and hurting and in need of a Savior, that we are inherently sinful, that we are not inherently good, fundamental, fundamentally good human beings. That we need someone greater than ourselves to save ourselves. That we cannot do any amount of good to be good enough. But God created us and even in our sinfulness decided to come and save us and send Jesus. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because he loves us. 
The main problem is never our suffering. It's always our sin. So are you saying that God doesn't care about our suffering? Not at all, because we know by the end of the story that Jesus heals the suffering. But we all have to come to terms with the fact that I am not good in and of myself. I need a Savior who says that I am good, who says that I have value and valued me enough to send his son to die for me so that I could spend an eternity with him so that I can be that person by the empowerment of his nature inside of me. See, what happens is, is when we pursue the need or the antidote for our suffering, we make that antidote or that remedy the savior of our lives. If I just get this, then I will be okay. If I, if I just have this job, then all my financial needs will be met and it's okay. If my, if my husband or my wife would change, God, if you would, if you would give me a new one, if you would, whatever, it would just be better if I were prettier, if I were smarter, if I didn't have love handles, if I, if I just had this house or I could go here, if I just had X, then everything would be okay. We all have that thing or that person, right? But then the, the worst thing in the world that can happen is we get that need met and we are more depressed than we were before because it always promises what it can never produce. It always delivers under what the promise was. There's a lady named Cynthia Heimel. She wrote an article for the Village Voice in the 90s a publication. And she lived in New York and she had the opportunity to see a lot of uh, actors and actresses who were struggling. And some of those make it to stardom and become a celebrity. And she watched that trajectory and that journey. And here's what she wrote about them. She said this, I, I, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame, so they worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. It's a great tragedy to get the thing you always thought you wanted and realize it cannot fulfill you the way that you thought it would. I listened to a podcast, and, and on this podcast, they, they were interviewing a guy who was friends, had, was friends a long time ago with a, with a singer, Moby, who's a Grammy Award-winning artist. And they, they reconnected, and Moby was telling him, because the guy was like, I can't believe you're so famous, and you've experienced all this, and they hadn't talked in years. And, and Moby went on to tell them, he said, one of the things you don't understand is, is this, is that I would, you know, at the height of my career, I was in, over in Europe going to receive an award, and they gave me the penthouse suite, and it was beautiful, and I was higher than almost any other place in the city. And all I wanted to do was jump out the window. The height of everything I thought I wanted and I was more depressed and I was more broken than I had ever been in my life because it did not fulfill me. In fact, it made me more empty. See, God is not immune to our suffering. God is not ignorant of our suffering. God has the ability to see past the surface and to the, de the depths of who we are because he understands the discontentment of the human heart runs deep. And God will deal with our eternity before he deals with our reality, our current reality. Because think about it, what good would it have been for Jesus to say, get up and walk and never deal with the man's heart or eternity and that man spent an eternity apart from Jesus. He could walk, but he, Jesus didn't deal with his deeper need. 
God is always concerned with our deeper need over our current need. He will always dig deeper if you let him because he can see deeper because here's the fact we can't see that deep. We are incapable of going deeper. So when Jesus looks at the paralytic, he he sees the need, but he sees past the need. He sees the paralysis of the human heart. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You know, what's interesting. If you grew up in church and maybe find yourself a little bit religious, you'll find that that man never asked for his sins to be forgiven, but Jesus forgave him anyway. That'll blow your religious mind right there. He didn't ask for it, but Jesus gave it anyway. And we know it's a big issue because the religious people in the room at the time, the Pharisees who taught the law, they start thinking in their minds, there's no way that Jesus can, he can do this because if he is claiming to forgive sins, then he's claiming to be God. And the fact that Jesus is God because he could hear what they were thinking and then he addresses it. And he says, why do you say in your hearts, why do you question in your hearts whether or not I can forgive sins? He asks this question. Let me say, is it easier? What's easier? Is it easier for me to say, son, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? What's easier? He says, I'll prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. And that's when he turns to the man and says, take up your mat and walk and go home. And the man immediately jumps up, grabs his mat, scoots out the door. And everybody is amazed. We've never seen anything like this before. He says, I'll prove it to you. See, what Jesus understood and what they they didn't, because they were right in their question. They were right. There's no way he can forgive sins unless he's God. And that's what Jesus was claiming to be. That's what Mark is showing us right in the second chapter. Hey, I'm here. I was prophesied, but I want you to know I am God incarnate on this earth, and I am here not just to heal sickness and disease and deformity. I am here to forgive sins and take care of people's eternity. And here's what Jesus is saying. When he looks at the man, he recognizes something that no one else in that room does. It's not easier for Jesus to heal him. But here's what Jesus recognizes. For me to make your legs work, I have to have mine nailed to a cross. To alleviate your suffering, I have to kick upon the suffering of all the world in myself. To set you free inside of the depths of your heart will require me to do something that no one in the room can do. Not even you, Pharisees, you teachers of the law. What Jesus does in that moment is he sets himself on a crash course for the cross. He makes it clear that he's here, not just to be a good man, not just to be a prophet, not just to heal some people, but to save humanity for all time. That's what Jesus is saying in that moment. It wasn't just about the need of the paralytic or the faith of those men. It was about the need of the human heart and the suffering that we all experience and that we are incapable of alleviating it without the person of Jesus. It's like this. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to them and is saying to us today, I am your fulfillment. I am the 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 the." fulfillment of the deepest longing of your heart and if you have me and only me you will be fulfilled and even if you fail me I will forgive you and I'll never walk away from you and I'm the only savior that can do that that's what he's saying and that brings us to the question that we're asking in this series and that is this who do you say that he is who do you say that he is if you were to ask the paralytic had Jesus not forgave his sins, he would have said, Jesus is a healer. But I think if you had asked the paralytic after it, he would say, oh, he's not only a healer, 
He forgave me for everything I had ever done. How could he know that? Because he knows everything. The fact that we serve a God that sees our brokenness, sees our pain, sees our sinfulness, and his response is, let me heal you. I want to forgive you. God's ultimate response to sin is forgiveness, is grace. He judged Jesus for it, and he forgives us. We have to answer that question. Who do we say that he is?